0: Welcome everyone to Los Libertinos podcast. I am your host Carlos Abelard, and this is Chingazos and Fire, episode number fifteen. Our guest today is Gilbert Garcia. He is a graduate of Harvard University. He is the author of Reagan's Comeback: Four Weeks That uh, in Texas That Changed American Politics Forever. Uh, he's a, an award-winning uh, reporter. Uh, and he is currently the Metro columnist for the San Antonio Express News, and he is the co-host of Pudo Politics, a political podcast for the Express News. Uh, welcome, Gilbert, to the, to Los Libertinos. Thank you, Carlos. It's great to be here. So, um, some people might know you, uh, uh, that from, from the people that, that, that are hopefully subscribers, family, friends, because, uh, uh, I know you from, um, from uh being a part of a local radio show the Jack Riccardi show when i used to right. get invited and you and i was just a phone caller person and somehow uh, uh it was a bad it, it's been a, a a nice trip uh because um uh, it's just funny how things kind of go full circle sometimes so i've always kind of liked all that stuff but uh for anyone that doesn't know um, uh uh, know you I, i'd like to see if you can kind of uh give a background to like your uh you know born raised your, your you know your upbringing um your education and how you kind of uh, took a trip where you're kind of where you're at now. You know, I know it's kind of a, but if you yeah. can kind of uh, summarize
1: uh, your background there before we get into some of this stuff. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, well, I, I was born in Brownsville. <coughs> I, I uh, spent my first 12 years there, then moved to Edinburgh. So complete, completely a product of the valley. And um, I ended up, like you mentioned, I ended up going up to, you know, to the, the you know, out of state for college. And really, it grew out of the fact that, like, I had a, when I was a sophomore, I had a friend who was a couple of years older who went to Princeton. And I was like, well, you know, you can do that. You can, like, you can go outside of Texas. It hadn't occurred to me you can go outside of Texas. So there was this kind of a small group of us at, at Edinburgh High School. We only had one high school at the time who kind of started thinking in those terms about maybe going to different places around, you know. And so we had one person went to MIT and one person went to uh, Yale and this kind of stuff. So it was kind of just this group of friends, really, from, from Edinburgh High School. Um, and as far as like journalism, you know, I, I was thinking I'd probably end up being a lawyer. I, I majored in government, which I don't know. I'm not really sure how much good it's done me, you know, because it's like I, I do write a lot about government, but it's not like I ever uh, taught, you know, you know, a lot of people who probably major in that, there's probably maybe like an academic career or something like that. But I got in- interested in journalism really. And this is where I think my path is probably unusual is that um, I got interested in journalism because uh, I was a musician. And I was really interested in music. And I thought along the way, I thought, you know, I would read music magazines, this kind of stuff. And so I started wanting to write about it. And in the, in the same way that I think a lot of sports writers are probably like frustrated jocks. You know, they, they want to be close to sports because they, you know, if they can't make it to the NBA, they would love the idea of writing about it. You know, and um, so for me, it was like I loved being around music and uh, and I kind of felt like I understood the language of music. so. I was really a music writer and I main, mainly wrote about music and the arts, and I interviewed musicians and, and and did all this kind of stuff. And then, very slowly, um, and I mainly wrote for weekly newspapers. I probably spent more, more of my years working for like alternative weekly newspapers. And, um, you know, the last 12 years or so with the Express News, but before that, it was mainly weeklies. And so uh, that was the thing. And I kind of stumbled into writing about politics. I was interested in it, just like you are but it wasn't something that I really thought about writing about, but then I started doing a little bit of it here and there. And then it, it just kind of, kind of grew and, um, and I got a chance to come to the express news and stuff. So I, I've um, yeah, it was, I didn't really had any kind of plan or anything like that. And I think one, one thing that, that I like to think is that, you know, because I was a music uh, writer initially, and I was a music fan. I mean, when I, when I was, teenager and I was reading music magazines and stuff like that. The, the the music writing that I loved was really irreverent. And it would, even if they were writing about like musical artists that they liked, the writers would would tend to like make fun of them suddenly or poke fun of them a little bit. You know, they were not like, they were not uh they had a sense of humor about it, you know, and and a and a, a willingness to kind of poke fun even the people that they liked. And so I I I think maybe a little bit of that, I, I'm not sure how much, but a little of that maybe you know, crept into some of the political writing I did because, you know, I, I just never felt like uh, I have a lot of respect for for people who get into the, the political arena because it's so hard to actually put yourself out there and run for office. It's it's really, really hard. But at the same time, I think, you know, people we have to have a sense of humor about it and not, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, even if you even even with somebody that you respect or admire, you know, it's you can kind of poke fun at them. Yeah, no, I hear you.
0: Yeah. And um, when I had reached out to you, I I had uh, kind of uh, put the premise out that uh, I wanted to kind of discuss your point of view mm-hmm. on um, kind of the, the pull and tug that you get from the political right against maybe you personally on your on, on your writing uh, style or and and also maybe the the media class so to carry those type of sure. those two you know personal and the media class but um but um and to know like if, whether it's warranted or if it's just politics but um uh what uh, uh i'd like to get back to that but what i wanted to first get into because it's like the 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 hot stuff right now it's all of the 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 Afghanistan pullout and you had a, a a recent piece that you put out on the express news, which I'll put a link to here in the show notes too. And, um, okay, and I think it speaks, uh, uh, exactly to why I wanted to talk to you, which, which is that every time that I've always interacted with you, uh, I've always thought that, um, and Hey, and Hey, uh, sports metaphors are good here. Cause I'm a sports fan and I know you're a sports fan too. So, uh, I've always thought that you, uh, of have, have called called balls and strikes, uh, uh, the best way that that you can you know, and uh sometimes there's a uh, that same that same uh pull and tug that you get from the outside you know you, you have that inside of you too, you know, where you want to call your own balls and strikes uh you know your own code, I guess you would want to say and um and the piece that you wrote you know you're you're you know you're already like kind of uh you know you're giving uh, a perspective that most people don't like when it's team sports when we're talking about politics right everybody likes to be on their side and and you kind of uh, uh uh you know you wrote a piece uh about kind of the that both uh Trump and and Biden might have had the the best takes on uh uh uh, uh, uh as presidents of the four presidents that have uh uh reigned over the Afghanistan war uh can you kind of talk about your piece and yeah. then also I'd like to to see if we can have this this running conversation about cuz I kind of uh, have this idea is that to me the way that um uh after 9-11, I knew the change was the, the world was gonna change. Mm-hmm. And then after COVID, I knew the world was gonna change. So mm-hmm. I kind of feel that there's these similarities and these parallels that are running together and how maybe these two Afghan, the Afghan and COVID stuff is like converging these narratives that, that are just really big narratives. And um maybe talk about your piece and we kind of get into that For a little sure.
1: bit. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that, that we've all seen um with with the press and and you know uh one of the things that that obviously changed in in my lifetime was um you know just the rise of like 24-hour you know news channels and stuff like that which i think has changed the way people cover things and because they have to fill up a lot of time and there's a lot of people who are just on there uh throwing out opinions and so in in what that means is that you you're expected to be to have these uh, people who are guests on a lot of 24 hour news channels are expected to have like these brilliant, uh, insightful takes immediately in the in the heat of a moment. And so the, the the hot take right now is, oh, my God, this is a disaster. Afghanistan, this is a disaster. And Biden has just he's disgraced himself. And this is really awful. And uh, and I'm, I'm not coming at it from the perspective of, of a defender of him or anything. But I'm just looking at the situation and I'm thinking, I think there's been pretty widespread bipartisan agreement in this country that uh, that Afghanistan, we've been there too long. I mean, when Obama took over in 2009, this is 12 years ago, polling showed, I think there was Gallup Poll that showed only 35% of the people in this country wanted us, were happy about us continuing to be there. That was 12 years ago. And this is really an, outrageous that we've had troops there for 20 years. Um, and none of us uh, could have envisioned that, you know, when this happened in 2001. So we all knew that, I mean, there was widespread agreement. This has to end. Donald Trump negotiated uh, a deal with the Taliban, uh, spent most of 2019 negotiating. In early 2020, they reached an agreement. We're going to pull out in May of 2021. So if he'd gotten reelected, he would have pulled out. And he actually said in April, I'm glad Biden's doing this, that he's continuing with this, this agreement." I wish it would it would be even a little bit earlier, a few months earlier. That's what I wanted. So there doesn't there wasn't a lot of controversy about that. Ted Cruz and and various other Republicans were all saying three or four months ago, Biden's doing the right thing. I'm glad he's sticking to the Trump agreement. And it's we've been there too long. We shouldn't be doing this nation building. This that that isn't good. And so I I find myself thinking, well, yes, the the exit is chaotic. Um, I think that people have made the point that. When you're whenever you invade a country and your side doesn't win or the opposition does win, the end is going to be chaotic. I don't know how it's I don't know how you're going to get out of there without some chaos. Now, should they have started evacuating people slowly over a period of, of weeks? Uh, I'm sure they should have, you know, and I've heard Biden's argument for not doing that. I, it didn't really I didn't think it made a lot of sense, but I, I mean, they should, probably should have evacuated people earlier. Um, And when he admitted that he didn't think that the Taliban was going to just take over the country so fast, he was surprised. I thought, well, you know, he should should have access to the best intelligence. How was he surprised by this when I think you and I probably saw this coming? Right. So, So I'm not saying that he was without fault. But nonetheless, no matter how this went down, it was going to be chaotic and it was going to be clumsy. Getting out of a country where you've been there 20 years and you've got people who are going to want to leave the country, you've got interpreters and so on. So it was going to be clumsy. So I'm thinking, what is the big objection people have? Like people had already agreed that we it was time to get out, long past time to get out. And we knew that getting out meant the Taliban was going to win. That's why Donald Trump negotiated with the Taliban. He didn't negotiate with the Afghan government. They were an afterthought. He said he's negotiating with them because it's really, they're the ones who are really going to have a say in this. So it's like, we're going to get out in May of 2021, and are, but we want you to be cool with us as we make our way out of there, right? Because it's it's what you decide. That's what matters. Because because you're the ones who are going to be in power. So everybody understood. that. So what's the big surprise here? And you know, people are saying, "Oh, well, you know, I, I saw. Uh, I think it's Richard Engel who was uh, reporting. He's done some good reporting over the years. But he was like, you know, passing by a, a beauty salon that had closed and say, "Oh, this is what the Taliban is doing." And it's it. We know that this is their history when it comes to women's rights, and it's awful. But. Um, you know we know about saudi arabia and their history wounds we know about their other countries the the real issue i mean the issue is can we solve every nation's problems um and uh, can we can we can we correct every social injustice and and if we're going to try to are we going to do it by sending ground troops in there and committing them for 20 years and are we going to spend 2 trillion dollars and lose 6000 military and civilian lives and it's not just the, the lives lost carlos you know it's like Think of the some of the, these these soldiers who had to go and then go back again and and to be out there for really long times in a really dangerous uh, hot spot. So to me, Biden was just doing what Trump had already negotiated, what most people on the uh, in, in both parties thought was probably the right thing, and it was there was some clumsy clumsiness in the execution. But I found that people. We're saying, oh, this is this is a disaster for Biden. This is a defeat for him. And I think well, we knew it was a defeat. We, we knew that this was, you know, this was going to be essentially a military defeat. That was that was the negotiation. So I, I thought uh, this. I found this week that you know, so people were throwing criticism at him or saying he was his disaster. And then his defenders were saying, well, no, it's, it was Trump's disaster because he's the one negotiated it. And I stepped back and I said. I don't think I think of the four presidents who who served during this twenty year period. I I am more most comfortable with the two of them in terms of Afghanistan. Now, anybody who's read my column knows I got a lot of issues with Donald Trump, and I don't. I think he's. A, I'll just say it. I mean, I think he's a person of very low character, and I think. And I I, and uh, as I I, agree, I only agree with Ted Cruz on a lot of things, but I think what Ted Cruz said in twenty. Uh, 15 during the primary race, that he Trump doesn't know the difference between the truth and the lie. I think there's something to that. So I, I don't have a high regard for Trump, but I'll say this. He views foreign policy as he views most things in a very transactional way. Like, what's the bottom bottom line thing? Is this, and sometimes I don't think that's the right approach. Like with NATO, he just looks at NATO as a scam because he thinks, you know, hey, we're putting all this money in and we're, you know, what are we getting out of this deal? So I'm not saying that his that approach is always the best, but in In one way, I think his transactional approach to foreign policy is really good because he's not wedded to some of the old uh sort of uh, you know classic thinking about how we should conduct our foreign policy, which was I think what got us into Iraq and Afghanistan in the first place this this idea that it's it's okay it's okay for us to go in to occupy a country. I think we've had thirteen or fourteen cases now where the u s has invaded foreign countries. We it usually ends up in a big mess. And in the case of both Iraq and Afghanistan, we had we broke it, so we had to buy it. And we had to we had to try to maintain the peace because we owed it to them. And and I do feel bad for the people of like Afghanistan because we you know, we do have some responsibility as a country because we 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 disrupted everything there. You know, we we put in a new government and we stayed there for 20 years. And so there's a feeling now that we, You know, we've we created this a new order there for them. And to just pull the rug out, that's that's not the greatest thing. Yeah. But the problem was getting in there in the first place. And I think Bush was he always said, I don't believe in nation building. But then he did it. And Obama would not have admitted that he liked nation building. But yet he was a supporter of Afghanistan. He increased the increased the troop levels. And I think uh, I'll, I'm sorry to get you ramble, but the last thing I'll say is just that I believe by the time bush left office in january 2009 he had to know that we were we were in a, in a corner because um the u the the taliban was never going to be wiped out the or i should say that the the afghan government that, that was put in place was never going to be solid enough to maintain to maintain its hold without u.s troops so what are we going to do? keep our troops there for, for 100 years or you know we don't want to do that but but if we if we if we leave, we're so So Bush was thinking, I I'm sure we're we're we just I, I'm just going to kick the can down the road and keep our troops there. And Obama, I'm sure, thought, I don't want to I don't want to be the president who's presiding over. This is what what happened with Biden shows why you see Bush kicking the can down the road and Obama inheriting the situation and saying, I'm going to kick the can down. The road. Why? Because of what we've seen this week, because the president who happens to be in office. Biden has been in office for seven months out of the 20 years, but he's getting all the blame or most of the blame, you know, and and it's ridiculous. But he just happened to be the guy. So it's his defeat. Well, if Obama had taken the same action and pulled troops out seven, eight years ago, it would have been on him. Right. So, yeah. What? um, uh, So, 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 so what about the take
0: that? um Uh, You know, because you said you know the hot take right now, right? So it's the media hot take, the twenty four hour cycle, right? Um, But the hot take, you saw uh, the uh, the media align itself mostly towards being uh, that they objected to Biden's actions. You know, so usually, you know, you know, you kind of know the the two sides, you know, who the players are in this in this in this wrestling match, right? But they kind of started they morphed into one and. And so how much power does the media have to push the narrative for war? Meaning like, you know, you said uh, kick the can down the road. Well, because the any no president wants to have the, the media blitz, negative media blitz that they just are giving right now to Biden, you know, so they and Obama didn't want the same thing. Trump tried to be halfway right, like negotiate to the next thing, use it as leverage to get voted again and this. But he also didn't want to be the guy to have it and stuff like that. So, how much power does the media have to push the pace for something like foreign policy because yeah, you know what? Uh they are more connected to this because they have their uh I guess and you could speak more to this their their sources, their their the people they their interpreters that they talk to. So, they have more personal connections to to an involvement like overseas involvement, but you know, as someone like us that just sees the news, we don't see that background production that's that's there. But we also um, can kind of appreciate a little bit the old school style of something like Biden saying, "I'm sticking to it. I'm sticking to it. I'm sticking, You know, you know, uh, you know, you know. Like I said, you know, I've said that. And yeah, you give Trump credit for getting the ball rolling, and then you give Biden for hitting the strike or whatever. You know, I mean, whatever. You know, I mean, um, you know, just calling balls and strikes. But how much power does the media have to push a narrative for war for twenty years? I mean, do they have that much leverage to? You know, I mean, they're, they're also om- almost showing future presidents, hey, if you pull out of anywhere else, Biden or anybody, th- you're going to get blitzed in this way. I mean, you know, how much power do they have?
1: It's a great point. And I don't think they, they even realize that. You know, I think obviously TV has a lot of power because they're showing images from there. And some I mean, of them are really sad images, you know, people trying to evacuate. And, and then those are going viral. And so in that social media climate, it has a lot of impact. Um, but I was thinking, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about, uh, you know, this isn't exactly like Vietnam, but the thing that's, that that I see is similar is, you know, Lyndon Johnson comes in in 1963 and he's dealing with the Vietnam War. You know, I my understanding of his position really changed years ago when I listened to uh, uh, a, a, like a phone conversation he had. Uh, and I cannot remember who he was talking to, but he was it, this was maybe it's 1965, maybe even a little bit earlier. So this is pretty early before the real uh, expansion, the escalation of Vietnam had really, really, really taken off. And he's basically saying things like, uh, I just don't see how we're going to win this thing. I don't see, I don't see any good ending to it. He's he's already predicting, you know, 10 years in advance, nearly 10 years in advance, that this is going to basically be a stalemate, that there's no path to victory for the United States, that, um, and he's, He's he's basically saying, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm just I'm just totally stuck here. I don't know what to do. And and I what the way I took it was. Probably the main reason he didn't know what to do was because I think there's. Either in that conversation or another conversation, he's you know, he there's a there's a, play, a point where he said something like, I'm not going to go down as the first president, uh you know, to lose a war. Or I'm not going to be the first. I don't want to go good as a president who lost, you know, to the, uh, to the communists or whatever. So you have the you have the sense. And we, we think back on Vietnam, oh, it was so unpopular. And we think of protesters. But in 1964, 65, the war was supported and by most people. And Lyndon Johnson's the political calculus for him was not like, oh, I need to get out because uh, there are all these anti-war protesters. They weren't really around very much at that point. His his thinking is, if I pull out right now, I'm going to be seen as this weak figure and I'm going to get I'm going to get attacked. I'm going to be seen as like this. This guy couldn't stand up to to the to the communist uh, bloc. You know, so that was the perception. Yeah. So I think a lot of what he was doing was he was being driven by this sense that he didn't want to look weak. Even So it wasn't that he was he had conned himself into thinking we can win this thing. That's what made it even more sad to me that he knew early on. This is unwinnable. But he continued on because the alternative, which is to pull out. He couldn't stand what how it was going to make him look and how he was going to be. That I, This is my belief that he couldn't stand how this was the, 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 the way people were going to respond to it. And then Nixon comes in in 69 and he's just like. Think he you know he could have he could have probably started withdrawing troops immediately, but he waited about four years to negotiate what was essentially a defeat. I mean it was it was terms of, of defeat. You could have negotiated that in 1969 instead of 1973, but you know he had he didn't want to be the, he didn't want to be what Biden is right now. He didn't want to be seen as the guy before his second his re-election as the guy who's presiding over this disaster with people trying to escape Saigon. And U.S. looking uh, in, in, pathetic, so a lot of this is just out of that. And so I think that the media has a role to play in um, in the way it, it, it handles all these things. Uh, absolutely, and I, I will say this that I think that part of the the uh, twenty four hour you know news cycle with the with you know uh, nonstop TV news. Part of it is that things really burn very intensely, but it also they also uh, can fade pretty quickly. And and I've I've learned enough to say I don't know what people are going to think about how Biden handled this in six months or a year. But I would caution people to not think that oh my god you know a year from now everyone's going to look at this the same way that everybody's talking about it today. We're like oh my god he looks so weak and he's inept and he doesn't know what he's doing and it's chaos. Some of that's gonna get forgotten. And I think also, I mean, we're talking about Afghanistan. I really think there had to have been some kind of informal verbal discussions between the Taliban and the administration. So that because from what I'm seeing, they're allowing people to evacuate. I'm not, we're not really seeing people. We're seeing people like, you know, we saw people trying to get on a plane and falling to their death and so on. It's horrible, it's tragic. But I'm not, unless I've missed it, I haven't seen the Taliban like shooting at people trying to keep them from evacuating. Um, I think that there was some, you know, really, if you look at this, Carlos, the U.S. had 2,500 troops, I think, by the time Trump finished negotiating that deal. Are you telling that 2,500 American troops, uh, that the Taliban could not have beaten 2,500 American troops that were still left? I mean, the Taliban basically decided when that agreement was reached, and maybe even in the process of reaching that agreement, let's just wait this thing out. They could have taken over the country in early 2020 if they wanted. Right. But they negotiated this deal. And they thought this is the path of least resistance. We wait 14, 15 months, the US gets out, it's all ours. Yeah. And so I don't think they want I don't think they want a lot. I guess my point is I don't think they want a lot of trouble with the United States right now. I don't think I don't think they're looking for trouble because if they wanted trouble, they could have just taken over the country. And I don't think our 2,500 troops could have stopped them in 2020. They're they're they they probably want things to go fairly smoothly at this point, too. So what I'm saying is as more people get evacuated, as this thing sort of plays out, the images that we've seen like from a few days ago, you know, in a few a year from now, those those images might fade and people might ultimately remember. I'm just glad we got out.
0: Yeah, no, I, um, you know, and and um, so I'm not surprised that the Taliban is playing nice because, again, the media narrative, even back in 2001, and a lot of people don't know. It wasn't a media narrative; it's the truth. I mean, I'm sure there's reports. I mean, and I don't think I'm speaking out of line here. Is that, you know, right after 9/11, you know, Iran, the 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 mortal enemy here, tried, was trying to help us get Osama bin Laden, and then the Taliban was was like, hey, we'll go get uh, Osama bin Laden or, or or help you or point point to you where you can get him. and like George Bush was like, no, nah, we don't want help from the Taliban and stuff like that. So, you know. And because they don't really have a sense of time twenty years to them maybe is a different way like how we see it, you know you know we have basketball seasons and football seasons these these vatos have fighting seasons, so it's like for a country that has fighting seasons i mean um, you know you know uh it, it, it's a different mentality
1: so well, they're, so they probably have more patience i mean we're we're an impatient society and they're probably they're they're they from their perspective they're yeah they're probably. That's the thing. They would have waited 50 years. They would have waited 100 years. I mean, there, there was never going to be a point where they were going to say, okay, that's it. Plus, uh, I mean, there were all kinds of questions about the uh, Afghan government. And over the years, I mean, in Obama's recent book that he came, that came out, which was really interesting to I me mean, when he talks about Afghanistan, because in the 2008 debate with John McCain, he's saying the problem with the Bush administration was because you know, Obama was against the Iraq War, right? So he's saying the problem was that we, we, we got sidetracked. We should have been focusing on Afghanistan. We took our eye off the ball and we diverted all these resources to Iraq. And we, we, we lost bin Laden. We had a chance to get him. We should have been focusing on Afghanistan. And he was saying all that. So he was very pro-Afghanistan. That was the war we should be really concentrating on. But if you read his recent book, he talks about visiting. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but during the 2008 campaign, before he was even president, um, he actually visited Afghanistan as a, can- you know, as a U.S. presidential candidate. And he talks in the book about visiting, you know, m- meeting with the, with Karzai there and getting the feeling of like, you know, having heard stories about corruption in the government and really questioning whether this, this government had the support of the people, sensing that it probably didn't. So it's very interesting that he talks about feeling even in that moment, some real doubts about Afghanistan. But you didn't. But if, in terms of how he handled it publicly, he goes from 30 some thousand troops to 100,000 troops in that first year so uh yeah do um do do people that go and and
0: you went so like to these ivy league schools and that have maps road maps and maps and they just see pieces on the board like is uh afghanistan the prize for all the empires over history like hey is finally somebody gonna get afghanistan and it's still afghanistan is still afghanistan where it's still like um like i was saying like uh I don't know if they even I don't even know if they know that people know them as the the, the graveyard of empires. I mean, even uh, uh, Biden said it in his speech, which I thought was kind of that was kind of shocking to me because I was like, I mean, again, right. Not being super well read and educated, you could just be like, OK, they call it these elites call it the graveyard of empires. OK, why? Because nobody can rule it. OK, so then what are we doing there? Like, I mean, it doesn't even take a genius to be like, oh, uh, well, you know. What, what needs to happen to rule that place? Well, no one really has uh, really done it. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, if the place is called the Graveyard of Empires, maybe we shouldn't be there, you
1: know? Well, if you studied, the, you know, I, I'm no student of history, but if you studied what the Soviet Union went through, you know, in the 80s, you know, I mean, that that should have been a sobering lesson. But, you know, there there is this sense in the US. I mean, look, we've, in my opinion, we, we've had invasions for maybe three reasons. One, which was like strategic, which was, you know, uh, during the Cold War, we, you know, trying to fight communism or at least believing that that was the justification. One has been economic. You know, the, the United Fruit Company gets kicked out of Guatemala. So we're going to go say, we're going to overthrow the government and put in a government that's going to let our business, our big U.S. company go in there. You know, and there was some of that, some of that happened with Iran, too, in, in, the, in the 50s, with England and the United States, you know, worrying about, you know, oil company interests and so on. But there's been the economic thing. And then the other thing has just been imperialist. Uh, you know things which I, I I'd like to believe the U.S. has moved somewhat away from that that motivation. But certainly, if you look at some of the you know the history with the you know the Philippines and Puerto Rico, and you know and even go you go back to Hawaii in the 1890s. I mean, a lot of this was the U.S. being very you know ex- expansionist and imperialistic. And um, so I think those have been the main the main motivations you know for for uh, for this. Uh, but I don't I don't understand I you know I'd like to think that Bush though I think he, he 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 made big mistakes in both with both Iraq and Afghanistan I'd like to think that particularly with Afghanistan that he probably went in uh, thinking this is what I have to do to to to, to uh, avenge the 9/11 attack but this notion that it comes out of uh, the nice way of looking at it would be like idealism but I think the I see it more as arrogance, which is the U.S. arrogance that we can go in there and we can remake this other country and that our system is always going to work. I mean, and I historically like I've looked at Latin America and a little bit over the years. And, you know, if you look historically, you have some countries, you know, that are very agrarian and, you know, that you have incredible income inequality and you had you've had a a tendency maybe a tendency or a movement within certain countries to go towards socialism. And and then and then particularly during the Cold War, people would be all up in arms in this country. I'm not talking about Cuban by, by the way, but I'm just talking about in general because we've seen similar movements in other countries. And I think, you know, in this country, it would be like, oh, my God. And this is this we can't have this. But I, I am very much a believer that um, and we might see it differently on this. But I'm very much a believer that one size doesn't fit all when it comes to governing. I think if you have a very small country that's mainly rural, and uh, you've got a few people who are like billionaires, and you've got 90 some percent of people just, you know, living like basically in poverty, that you might want to consider some different approaches to governing. And that might work for them. And it doesn't mean that we it has to work for us, you know. Um, and, and in the same way that I don't even believe fiscal policy in government... Should always be the same, I think it you sometimes you should react to i think what maybe what f d r did in the in in during the great depression uh it had not everything worked, but I think that there was some value in what he did in that time period, but it might have not been the right approach in a different time so i i, I i'm not i'm not really um real rigid as far as my view that that one system works for every country and one approach works at all times, and so um But the United States has this idea that our system can be uh, exported and should be exported. not just that it can be, but it should be. And everybody should be just like us and they should have a system just like us. And, you know, I I certainly believe in everybody having the right to vote and and democratic system, but I don't believe our approach to governing and Mm -hmm. and our type of society is the society that everybody else wants or should have. And so I think we're probably in agreement on this, Carlos, that I just don't believe that the US should be uh imposing its will on the rest of the world in that
0: way. Yeah, and um I'm sorry to say Gilbert, but in Biden's speech and now and, and listening to you, and then I, I forgot to call this on, on when yeah. I was giving you know, because I was giving praise to Biden by saying, Good, you know, on the speech I heard this and this, and what else did you expect from him? But I did recall that he was kind of putting down the curtain on that on the Afghanistan stage. Uh, but he was raising a new curtain, which was towards Africa in that speech. He spoke of Somalia. He spoke of. So he's almost to me now. And, and I didn't say that when I posted about it. And, and now I'm saying it now is that it's going to the resources are just going to shift towards another sphere, an, an, another area. and And, you know, I mean, we'll start having to learn the names of all of these new terrorist groups. Uh, in Africa and that actually leads to the the so, some of the similarities that I've been trying to um and we can shift here is uh, um is that I I've kind of said in previous podcasts that I've had when I've talked to people about foreign policy and health and all these things that are going on is that and this week it kind of confirms something that I have and I just want to fill you out on this because um is that um um you know terrorism is like is a is a stateless threat it doesn't have borders
1: right
0: well a virus also is a stateless threat that doesn't have borders yeah. but um and um what i was saying was that hey you know what i w- i, w- I will just say like in the like, future talk is that hey i wouldn't be surprised that if in 10 15 years just the same way that we were hearing about different terrorist groups that would come out this name that name this name that name uh th- this there was always that threat That there's going to be the new variants and this and that, and I'm doing these similar. I'm doing these 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 things, but only as a way to know how government reacts to each, and how it and how it uh, functions in 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 parallel to our liberty and to our freedom. So 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 I'm trying to put that narrative out there, but it but not out there. But I just want to get your take that I know it's not the same, but but the government reactions can be similar. Is that to they're going to go straight towards. A security state feature rather than, hey, be personal, be personally responsible and and improve your own. You know, don't worry about terrorism. It's a very low percentage. Something's going to happen to you. Don't live in fear or, hey, you know what? uh, The the virus stuff is out there. Do the best you can get the best information. But, hey, also improve your health profile. Hey, you know, you know, like, you, you know, like you can't solve everything, just take care of yourself. So that's kind of something that I'm trying to find if there's similarities or not. And you could check me too, man, if you think I'm wrong on that kind of
1: idea. You know, I yeah, just I do think- it. Yeah, go ahead, man. I can disagree. I do disagree. So I, I'll, get, I'll get to the, uh, the the virus thing. But I, I would say like on, on terrorism, like, I do think that the government has a responsibility to try to keep people safe. And I think that there were some things that were done after 9-11 that were positive. I think that increasing airport uh, security um, I'm not. I, I don't know that everything. I mean, it was too easy prior to nine to September 11, 2001, for somebody to take a weapon on a plane and for somebody to to for one person to be able to go on there and do people harm. And that was it. Shouldn't have been that easy when you're talking about that many people on traveling together and in a confined space where there's no escape, really. So I think that there's some things that were that were done well. Now, obviously. With the Patriot Act and stuff like that, the, the government went too far and people were too willing to accept, oh, well, we, we just were so scared. We're going to people, you know, people make mistakes out of fear and, and the government can exploit that fear. And I think, you know, whether Bush and some of the some of his allies, you know, had good or bad intentions, the Patriot Act and some of those things and the the invasion of people's privacy went too far. But I do think the government has a, has a role to play in that and I, I certainly would say I just don't think that nation building is is the is the way to go with that. I would say with the virus that the big difference there to me is just that you know you're i mean we can see demonstrably like we can see people coming out of you know, we know people I think we all know people who've been hospitalized or people who have been on ventilators we know people or if we haven't had it, experienced it in our own family. We've no, we have friends who've had family members who've passed away. I mean, this is, we're seeing this, this is real. And I, I, I am always somewhat leery of government. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I, I, I worry too much that people now, that people now always go, we should question everything. But I think that the automatic knee-jerk thing to say everything is a conspiracy. Um, you know, I've, most of the conspiracy theories that I've heard in my lifetime from, you know, the, you know, the conspiracy Killed JFK to this and this and this and this. 9-11 was an inside job. I, I, I think any of those things, when you start to think about them, I don't want to get too sidetracked. Oh, oh no, no, no. no. But, uh, but, but I don't think I was talking of
0: conspiracy because I didn't, I didn't uh, say the word they. I'm just They're saying it. that, like, governments, policy reactions to a threat that doesn't have a nation state fl- a flag right. around it. So, you know, so China was they tried to put it on China. Right. But yeah. it's a virus. It goes everywhere, just like the idea of terrorism can. So, so a, a state that has a, a flag, a nation state, you know, doesn't know how to how to maneuver when it's dealing with those type of threats, you know. So true. so so so. So I just want to have those parallels to be able to reference. And so that was my next question is that. So, you know, was was that, you know, it, it, looking at it in that light, what would be the lessons? So. So the similar, you know, the lessons learned of Afghanistan. Is there any lessons that we can learn that we that from Afghanistan that we can try to use towards how we're going to tackle something that's going to be around for a long time, I think. And 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 also have the balance, and maybe not a balance, have a balance more towards our liberty than the government's uh uh overreactions that we agree that there's sometimes there's overreaction, you know, something like that. I'm trying to be in there. So that's, you know, so again, calling
1: balls and strikes, I'm trying to, there's, there's a middle ground that I'm trying to be in, you know? Yeah, I know. I, I, I hear you. I, well, one thing that I, that I was thinking about was that, I mean, I've heard, you know, like radio talk hosts and stuff like that say, and I've, I've heard this in reference to like last year toward uh, mayor Nuremberg and, and uh, County judge uh, Nelson Wolf is that, you know, that on some level, uh, and this is, you know, this is kind of a conservative.
0: And for anybody uh, that, I mean, for anybody that doesn't know, this is a San Antonio politics. So this, so anybody right, that's out right. there. Oh, thank
1: you for clearing that. Up. Uh, but, but, you know, kind of the conservative critique of them, because they've both been very strong advocates for restrictions that would, you know, uh, in the, in the interest of trying to slow the spread of the virus. And I mean, the conservative critique I've, I've, that I've heard against them at various times is that they almost, they kind of enjoy. I wouldn't say that people have, that the, the argument has been made that they enjoy that the virus happened. No I don't think anybody said that, but I've heard the argument that they almost enjoyed that that there's a situation in which they were able to exert control over people's lives. And um, I, I I just don't buy that. And, and maybe it's because I know both of them. I I, I don't, uh, not to say that they've done everything right, but I just, I don't believe that when Ron Nuremberg Got elected mayor in 2017. He was thinking, "Man, I really hope we have some kind of crisis so I can make sure that I can make, keep people from, from leaving their house and make everybody wear a mask." Because, man, that's that's been my goal in life to be an elected official who makes people wear masks because I get off on on you know on restricting their lives. I mean, let's be real. Ron remember, the, the last thing in the world he wanted to deal with was something like this. Really, I think any elected official who's halfway rational has any compassion for people. This is the last thing. That they would want, and they've been. I think they've tried to, to find a balance, but you know, everybody's gotten it wrong. I mean, Abbott was early on; he was, sh- you know, fairly early on, he was shutting things down, shutting down certain businesses, and and so on. When the when the the, the uh, infection rates were relatively low compared to now, and now we got the Delta virus, where like kids are getting it in bigger numbers, than we've seen and it's spreading so much more. And now he's saying, oh, the, that time has passed. We're not doing it. well. It doesn't. It, but the time was OK. Like, you know, you put a mask mandate in place in July of 2020, and we're actually doing worse now. So why is the time passed? Is it just like i Afghan- this is maybe where it's the parallel of Afghanistan. People, We just reached a point where it's like, OK, we're tired of this. Is is there a reason for for cutting out now as opposed to 10 years ago? Is is Afghanistan more secure? Is the Afghan government more, more solid? Has the Taliban been wiped out? No, we're just tired of it. We got to get out. We're doing enough. 20 years is enough. Well, I think with Abbott, it's just enough is enough. I don't want to go back to to the restrictions. I don't want to go back to a mask mandate. I don't care if kids are being required to go in person in school and a bunch of schools now are having 20, 30, 50 kids getting infected and schools are struggling to deal with it. I don't care. I'm not going to impose a mask mandate. And not only that, I'm not even going to let schools decide for themselves. Because remember, early on in 2020, he was saying every county is different. Let the counties, let the local ones decide. I don't want to tell. Now he's not even letting them do that. Now he's saying you can't impose a mask mandate. So, yeah,
0: so yeah. I, yeah the, the the inconsistency is always there. From like the people that um uh, that that we like, you know, someone like me and you know where I come like likes decentralized government. So yeah. you know they don't they, they like it decentralized from the feds. But when it's in Austin, oh yeah. then it's okay. You know if it's on their team, yeah. I don't like that shit, man. I,
1: I, I like it to. I, I want to be consistent. At, you know all throughout. You know. Well, the, 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 the conservative philosophy or the small government philosophy is, and I think you you have this belief, um, is that, um, you know, the closer it's the, the old expression. I'm going to get the, the quote wrong, but it's the you know, government works best when it's closest to the people. Well, ideally, that should mean local city government or county government. But obviously, we know the way the state is and probably other states, too, that our cities tend to be. Um, you know, more liberal politically, our elected officials are more liberal. We've got a state that's pretty conservative uh, uh, at the state level. So local control is not an appealing thing to Greg Abbott or Dan Patrick, when he's dealing with with big metropolitan areas. So he's trying to shut this down and and take away the, the power. He's been doing that for years. So I would just say that, honestly, I think that the effort... I don't really see any elected official. I, if they're out there, I've missed it. But in, in our experience in Texas, I have not seen elected officials saying, you know, we're trying to impose these restrictions because we want to control people's lives. I really think everybody's struggling. I mean, if, if we put ourselves in the shoes of anybody who's like a mayor or a county judge or even a superintendent of a school district, man, this is a tough time. Because yeah. it personal responsibility, I'm a believer in it. But when you're talking about Two people having a little bit of interaction speaking to each other and and that delta variant is getting spread like that and then I think that the average the, I, I think I saw something about you know on the average you, each person spreads it to like six people or something like that. I, I could be way uh, under under reporting that. So I mean we're talking about you can personal responsibility is great, but then if you infect your kid, and then your kid goes to school, and your kid infects a bunch of kids, and then some of them end up on ventilators. Or you know, personal responsibility. What what, what is that? You know, what how does that factor in when you're talking about spreading this to an entire community? Um, you know, in a perfect world, if everybody all took all the responsible actions, that would be great. I I I look. I think in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to mandate anything, because we would in a perfect world. You know. We wouldn't have to have cops checking to see if you're speeding, or checking to see if you're wearing your seatbelt, or checking because everybody would be so responsible. And I, it's a utopian vision, and I, I love I love the concept. But do we really think everybody is so responsible? I've seen a lot of people be really irresponsible. Yeah, at, I know. The, the virus. and I and I, I I don't want to take people's liberties away, but I think if you're like an elected official, man, it's a real struggle to think. Who am I representing am I representing the people who are being irresponsible and are spreading it all over the place or am I trying to represent the other people who are trying to do all the right things and keep everybody safe but they could end up getting on a ventilator or worse because of somebody else's irresponsibility and I'm trying to weigh these things out in the face of a pandemic that we haven't seen in a hundred years
0: yeah no, yeah I hear you yeah man I, I've always taken the 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 just the the private property take on it. And then I just respected everybody's private property and, and people respected mine. And if I wanted to enter someone's establishments and they had their own rules, I would respect their rules. And if I, you know, I I always just, I just, I just lived out as best as I could, the principles that I, you know, if I'm talking to, if I'm talking personal responsibility and private property, I just, I just try to apply it the, the best way I can. And yeah, I understand that for sure. It's hard for public officials because they do have the power to enact policy. And they're trying to find this balance. Um,
1: you know, the, the thing too is, uh, is that you know I mean people get uh, like uh, nightclubs, music venues, bars. And so on. when they've they've had uh, some of them in some places have said you want to come in and see a you know, live music performer you gotta you gotta show proof of vaccination. We're not letting me. And I know that's a controversial thing, but you know we're also in a, in an extreme situation and. All those other people who've been vaccinated and have maybe been really careful, they're going to see this. They're going to be jam-packed in this place with you. Possibly. Yeah. And, yeah. So how do you, and, and, and we, we've accepted for years that restaurants have signs outside the door or, or a policy saying no shoes, no shirt, no service. We don't think, oh, my God, they've taken away all our liberties. You know, we think it's their private business. They don't want me coming in here with no shirt, no shoes. And I don't have to go there if I don't want to. Yeah. you don't want to go see Jason Isbell perform, who's a a, a a singer-songwriter, who said, "If you want to come see me, you've got to be vaccinated." I'm not performing for anybody who is not vaccinated. Who is not vaccinated. Now, if you don't want to, if you don't like it, they, there's nobody forcing you to go see Jason Isbell, right? So, I'm I'm saying that these are balanced rights. And a lot of things that people are complaining about, they're not being forced into. They're simply being, you know, uh they're, they're A lot of it has to do really with like private enterprise saying, this is our rule and you can take it or leave it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what, you know, since, since that's my default setting, I don't
0: get hung up emotionally on it. Like it's like, and I'm an entrepreneur. So then my, my automatic thinking is that, Hey, if there's a a way to make money to counter some, you know, somebody's, you know, just like the way that back in the you know whatever like if if they don't want to serve them then somebody an entrepreneur will come in and start serving those people and 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 right. and, and and the market will make a space for anything like that uh so you know my default is setting pri- is private property so i i never really got like uh hung up on it it was you know i just respect people's you know private property and and really if you do that you don't get too emotional about it and yeah. and and to be out in public though uh then you know that's different too like i mean I if i want to do whatever i want to do in public well then you know i would say you know then it comes to like in public it's open you know to me that to me that is the way it is like outside of private property business and that but i know then so okay so that might be an issue uh, something we, that creeps into the um, like hey well if you have it and you're an open public does the government have a right to mandate yeah. a mask or this or that out in public i don't think it does because somebody has the right to stay home if they want just like i have the right to leave my home but in private property, Hey, you can do whatever you, you know, you, you know, that's, that's, that's your shit. So I don't know. Can we talk about that? I mean, that, that's a little bit more, uh, you know, that comes into the, the real, like we're getting past the, like, I think we're in agreement of private property or like, I ain't going to tell you what to do on your house or your private business, or your you know, you have your own rules. Cause we kind of agreed on that a little bit. What about out in public?
1: You know, that gets a little bit more, you yep. know, yeah, and, and I, look, I, and that—that I, and that is, I, I think, I think the government under extreme conditions has the right. Uh, I mean, w- this is really a, a crisis situation, and I think that um, you you're you're balancing it out as, as like, say, a mayor or or a, a you know local official trying to think. I mean, you, do you want your? And we're also dealing with when we talk about personal responsibility, we're also talking about hospitals that are running out of beds, and if you have Heart attack. I mean, let's put COVID aside. If you have a heart attack and you have to be hospitalized right now, is there gonna be a hospital bed for you? Because they're getting overwhelmed. And, and we're we're getting close to, to the point of where where there's nothing, there are no, not enough beds. But if this continues, if the surge continues, we're going we're not gonna have enough. We're gonna be there's gonna be a shortage. We're near capacity in, in many places, but we're gonna go past that. And if you have a car accident or if you have a heart attack or something like that. Are you even going to be able to get an ICU bed, right? So again, if you're the mayor of a city, you're like, how do I balance that out? So I think that that there is there is a a right to to mandate some of these things in public places. Uh, I, I think there are individual mistakes that I think were made locally. Like uh, uh, if I remember right, like last Thanksgiving there was a curfew for that weekend, which I think was a bad idea. I don't. You're basically telling people you can't go out. I think it was what was it ten o'clock or something like that. I'm thinking like. I don't know that after you know I don't know that after 10 o'clock things were going to necessarily be any more dangerous. I mean, you could say, well, people might go to bars or something, but if it's, if it's a matter of like going to visit family members on Thanksgiving weekend at 10: 30 as opposed to 9: 30, I'm not sure that, that there was much point in that. And I, I think that probably some of the there's probably some recognition of that that, that was a mistake. You know, I, I think they, they closed some city parks for some holidays last year. There's some things, I mean, they've been trying, they've been tinkering, trying to get it right. They're dealing every, you know, I'm mean, just like the scientists have been trying to get it right. I know there are probably people out there who think, you know, Dr. Fauci is the evil genius who's, uh, who wanted to, you know, Dr. Fauci wanted to get everybody sick because he's just a crazy evil man or something like that. Uh I, again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I, I I'm willing to believe the possibility uh, that there was some accident in a lab in, in China. I, I don't know. I, I probably shouldn't even get there because I don't know what happened. But if anybody really thinks that Dr. Fauci like uh, is responsible for this thing, so then that gets him; he gets to be the hero and pretend like you know that it's some kind of evil diabolical thing. I, I mean, I don't know what to tell to somebody like that, you know. So, um,
0: well, you know uh, what? Um, and 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 uh, kind of a back a little bit back to like the original piece that you wrote about Trump and um and uh, and Biden, like um you know it's two uh, spectrums politically. And 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 I'd like to think that maybe Fauci is right and Rand Paul is right. And really, it's a meshing of two worlds. Uh, and, and 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 maybe this is like a cliche. Oh, uh, the, the right is right in the middle. It's, there's somewhere in the middle that like that both sides can 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 come um, together on. I mean, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, you know, I don't know. But but I like to think that that yeah. that that not that Fauci is it. The evil man and that Rand Paul isn't the evil man, and that there, there's probably some, you know, yeah, you, you know, what I'm trying to say a little bit, right, a little I, bit.
1: I do. I do. The, the thing for me is that that it's not just Fauci, but in the CDC and so on, uh, other scientists who've spoken out. We see Dr. Peter Hotez in Houston, I think, who's done great work, but he's gotten a lot of, you know, he's he's had to deal with a lot of abuse from people. And um, but uh, you know, you know, people will say, oh, they, they were telling us when you know Fauci was saying don't wear a mask, and he said wear a mask, and he said, you know. With, they were dealing with they were dealing with a, a, something new here. This was a new beast. Um, I mean, we, it, th- there were there were differences in this virus. There were there were uh, things that they were learning along the way. Plus, also in the case of the masks, it was the, there was the fear that you know there were people were all buying up surgical masks. There were going to be enough for people in hospital, So they're saying they were telling the rest of us hold off on that right now. But also they're learning along the way. When you're dealing with something new, you're learning. And you're adjusting, and I think that to, to say, "Well, you told us this, and then three months later you told us that, and what's wrong with you?" I understand the frustration. I get frustrated too. But I mean, we have to realize that they're learning new things. I mean, there, there's new studies coming out all the time. The the the, the information initially about the uh, how the vaccine responded to the Delta variant was much more glowing than it is now. Now they're basically saying, you know, the main the main benefit is really when it comes to the Delta variant is just that it'll maybe limit how sick you get you know uh, but, uh, and, uh, but and uh and then now they're talking about the
0: third the third booster
1: right and then yeah. like so, you know so but but they're they're learning along the way and i think that um i think that the frustration that we we have this mentality of like they should know everything and if it's t- if, if if new information comes along and they're learning new things they're saying well we're going to adjust what we, we were saying and we were saying we thought Based on the previous strains, that this vaccine is not. Let's be real, Carlos. The vaccine initially was really just about, like most vaccines, was just to keep you from getting really sick, from getting really. But then along the way, there are some studies indicating, well, this thing actually can keep you from even getting non-symptomatic infection and from spreading it. And so people got, oh, this is fantastic. Well, with the delta variant, that isn't so true. But um, but it's still. A, a, by and large, is keeping people from getting very, very sick. And I think that um, you know we're we're learning new things along the way. New studies are yeah. finding new things, and we have to have some tolerance for the fact that they're learning along the way and they're trying to get us the information. And we get it really impatient because we think that they're supposed to know everything about a virus that continues to surprise us and that continues to produce new variants that are every one has a different set of rules, different playbooks
0: everyone yeah i um uh uh so what one of my takes and maybe we can get an agreement on this and then we can kind of shift to some other subjects okay. is that um that personal responsibility hasn't been at least i don't hear it and maybe i'm wrong hasn't been mm-hmm. pushed as strong as like the any type of government policy and that's to say however you want to say I mean, i'm joking around i could say Hey, do you really need that third taco? You know, you know, you don't, you know, hey, you know, like, you know, uh, if you, if you're a little bit more overweight or diabetes and this and that, you know, you know, you, you, you have a, a different take, you know, you know, Hey, what can you control in your life? That's your health. So maybe you should go outside and be healthier. Like, 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 like it's always been kind of like, not at the, that should be like a big part of the forefront. And then I would be like, okay, there's the government, Side of it, but the government at least is telling everybody, "Hey, get your your health in order too." Like, don't, just, yeah. just, just don't look at us,
1: yeah. like for for the solutions. Hey, look in the mirror, you know, like you know, fix your own believe, shit,
0: you know. I believe
1: that, and that's the thing with the vaccine. I mean, the vaccine. Although there have been some, you know, uh, you know, there have been some efforts to try to mandate vaccines, like a, you know, city government and different things. And uh, but primarily, I mean, this has basically been a voluntary thing, and we've had le- leaders telling people, "Get vaccinated, get vaccinated," but. That's personal responsibility. That's basically a decision that people are making. And, uh, you know, millions of people have decided not to do it. You know, the, the, the third taco thing, is, I, I hear you, but, you know, you have a third taco. It's not going to result in five or six people being sent to the hospital because, of what, because you chose to have a third taco. But, you know, your actions regarding, uh, you know, the, the vaccine, the, the, the virus, you know, you're, you're, you, could, you could take some other people's lives with you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess it'd be interesting to, to know that the third taco only represents like, uh, the, our overall health profile. And if, and if, and if in this run, because we weren't going out and this and that, we end up increasing like our body mass of the, like, we just got fatter and unhealthier. And then it's a perpetual thing. And it turns out that, oh, then like, again, like the, 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 the Afghanistan stuff in 10 years, we look back and be like, Man, yeah, you know, I guess we made some mistakes, you know. Again, you know, and then you just learn, and you learn from them, you know, and you learn from them, and 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 hopefully, uh, since it's all based on adjustments, and 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 and, yeah. and and there's also people that are dying that we know, and um, uh, yeah. it's a it's an interesting balance, and uh, you know, maybe we can agree that uh, that yeah, that people aren't the evil boogeyman they're trying to make them out to be because it's easy to, you know, uh, talk shit from the stands, right? I mean, it's it's harder to be in the game. Um, but, um, but, uh, you know, everybody's trying their best, I guess. I I do take the take that everybody's trying their best. Yeah. Uh, so changing a little bit of, a uh, 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 course here a little bit, um, is, um, because, uh, the show is called, uh, Libertinos. So I take a, a Liberty angle being a Latino. I wanted to talk about, um, the immigration issue here in tech, like nationally and in Texas, um. Um, I'd I'd like to get your take, uh, on the, the, your narrative or story, uh, I would like to say kind of like from the Obama, Obama to Trump into Biden, because that's kind of the, the, the arch that most people might, uh, uh, remember, you know, uh, a lot of people might not know, Oh, you know, Reagan did amnesty and things like that. I mean, a lot of people will, but my generation will not even know that some like uh, people, you know, like. The, 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 the guy that everybody likes on the right, he did amnesty. They were like, well, you know, people probably freak out, you know. So it might, you could touch on that. Can, can you give kind of a, the, the narrative of, uh, as, as you see it and, and also the, the tactics of fear that both sides use to, to push an agenda. But is the agenda good for the cause of, I guess the people on the border, but also the people on this side, you know, I, you know, it's a
1: big question I'm trying to, I'm trying to ask you here, you know, try your best to see if you can answer some of that. Sure, sure. Well, I think that one of the things that that has frustrated me over the years in, in recent years has been that, I mean, you know, like when Trump ran in 2015, he said, you know, obviously in that infamous speech that he made when he announced the campaign, you know, Mexico is not sending their best, which was, I would say it was very weird because you know, it was kind of comparing it to like Castro opening up his jails in, uh, in 1979 or 1980 and and sending sending people. This was what we would see historically with Mexico was not Mexico sending people. It was individual people who were usually living in dire conditions in Mexico saying, I, I'm, I'm going to try to find some, some kind of better life. And if I have to sneak across the border to do it. This. So it wasn't people... Mexico was sending people, individuals were choosing to come and putting themselves in danger. So, and then so that, you know, they're not sending their best, all that. I, I obviously had a lot of problems with the way he put it. But one of the things that, that frustrated me too is that really by that point, and this has continued to be true, that the major issue we've had with immigration or with border policy has not necessarily been the, we still see some of this, but we it's not primarily the old, uh, you know, uh, image that people have of, of of people sneaking across the border from Mexico. There's obviously there's some of that, but the main issue that we've had has been the influx of people from Central America who are trying, who are seeking asylum. And so many times when I hear people talk about uh, you know uh, illegals and this, and they're using these kind of this terms. Seeking asylum is, is a legal process. It is a, it is a legal right that people have. You are allowed to come to the border and seek asylum. That doesn't mean you're going to receive asylum. There's a, a process that you go through and some people are accepted and some people are going to be rejected. But it is a legal process. And Trump tried to do some things, you know, to you know, kind of cut off some of the places where people could come ports of entry so that people would make it harder or they would only let so many people in a day basically just so people would get frustrated and quit. He tried to make it as difficult as possible. But these these issues, I mean we're talking about um primarily the the influx of people, the overwhelming you know uh the just this issue that we've had has been with the legal process of asylum. And I think that the obvious thing we have to do is uh which has been talked about is just to try to expedite that process as much as you can to try to whatever, you know, whatever resources have to go into asylum courts so that we can make this process move faster so that these cases can be processed so that either they get to stay or they don't, but it moves faster. Um, but what the policy has been, and truthfully, Obama was not that different than Trump in this way. And even Biden now is that the policy has been deterrence. You just try that the government has basically taken. Even if they come in with a different attitude, because Biden, as a candidate, was saying, if people want to seek asylum, you know, we welcome and we come. But as president, and if you look at what he has said and Kamala Harris said, it's back to this deterrence, which is we want to make the process of asylum, seeking asylum, so miserable for people. That other people, they're going to say, I give up. And other people from their countries, their Central American countries primarily, are going to say, oh, this is horrible. I'm not going to come. You know, so that's really been the policy. I don't think that's a really great approach necessarily, but that's been that's been the policy. So, if you look at what Trump did, which now Republicans are very mad that that you know by Trump, Trump had this uh, policy remain in Mexico. Yeah, place right. So basically, you were still You still had the right to seek asylum, but instead of coming to the border and then maybe being put in a shelter for a while and then maybe putting to get put together with some family or something while your case was processed in the United States, instead. You're gonna to have to stay on the Mexican on the Mexican side. Now, people can debate this policy, but one of the things that I hear, and I hear it's like from Congressman Chip Roy and everything, he'll take pictures, you know, he'll go down to the border and he'll he'll go to some shelter and he'll take pictures of like a toilet that looks it's just horrible a bathroom. Oh my god, look at these humanitarian conditions of people Just discussing situation that people are being put in these conditions. And and that that's not that's not untrue. But I'm saying if, if your if your case is Look at this what a humanitarian disaster this is. Are you saying then that the preferable thing is to tell people while your case is being processed, we want you to stay just on the Mexican side of the border where you're basically living homeless out camping out in a tent for a year or a year and a half and people so if somebody wants to commit a crime they can attack you and your family or you know you can get robbed or you have to deal with weather conditions and you're out there basically for, for endlessly. I mean, is that, is that a more humanitarian? So, so don't, I, I would just say the politicians who are saying, if they're saying, oh, the human, it's because even Trump's saying that he he went out, Shanghai, he must go, oh, it's so terrible. These, these kids and the humanitarian crisis, you put in place Remain in Mexico and Chip Roy supports Remain in Mexico. There's no way you can look at that as a humanitarian approach. So what Biden has said, we've had people, we've had people there for two years. On the Mexican side of the border, waiting for the cases to be processed. I mean, so he's saying, okay, let's let's have these people in. Now, the actual numbers, I think, are pretty relatively small a few thousand people. I, I don't know the exact number, but they're not really that big. They don't really account, those numbers don't account for this big surge that we've seen. But Republicans have have uh, gone to town with this issue of the oh, Biden, it's open borders. Uh, I don't see an open border, but I do think that he's changed that one that one policy because. I don't see how you really justify it. The only justification for remain in Mexico is that you're basically making it so horrible for those people that you're sending the message, hey, nobody else come because look at what they're having to do. They're going to spend two years living out homeless on the Mexican side of the border." So that's, that's been the policy. Just make it horrible. Separate families. Make it horrible. Now, Biden's not doing the, the, the separation, but he's, but he's going along with certain things. And um, the, the Title 42 thing was during the pandemic, we're not going to let anybody come in. Biden has continued that. I mean, I don't know if Republicans, how many Republicans are aware of this, you know, when they talk about open borders. Biden has continued that. He's basically sending new, he's dealing with remain in Mexico because those were existing cases, but with with new people coming, except for uh, unaccompanied kids, that's the one big change he made to Title 42. But otherwise, they're sending them back. So there's a lot of, you know, I, I don't have the the answers, Carlos, but I do, I will say that a policy that's basically built on let's just make it so horrible and miserable. And not and that we're not talking about making it horrible and miserable for people who are trying to illegally sneak across the board. We're talking about making it horrible and miserable for somebody who wants to follow the legal process of seeking asylum. We're we just want to make it so awful for those people that they're just gonna be like, oh my God, I'm I'm gonna give up and I'm gonna and and we're gonna get the word out to my to you know, uh, in, in all our countries that if you come, it's going to be terrible. Yeah. There's yeah. gotta be a better policy than that. in my yeah. opinion.
0: Yeah. And, uh, that leads to my next question. And, uh, and, uh, that's kind of then goes towards, and I'm going to kind of, I have, I have uh, some questions here as as I know uh, to respect your time, uh, that leads to my next question is, uh, what is going on with the Alamo because, um, you know, when I got into the Republican Party through the Ron Paul uh, campaign to support of his candidacy, man, the one thing that I saw rage in people's faces was anything that had to do with immigration. And, and, you know, it was weird, man. I, I remember just being like taken aback. You know, it was just something passionate about that. But it was about the narrative about the the the, the, the Mexican side getting into the narrative of our society or whatever. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the animal Mm -hmm. because it touches in it touches some of that. But, um, you know, uh, uh, my take is that, you know, uh, I have no, 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 no. I don't have a stake like some of the stakeholders do, but also like, uh, you know, I I, uh, want to be a tourist in my own city. So I wouldn't mind seeing some new shit. But anyway, but uh, that's just my take.
1: (laughs) On the point that you're making about, you know, immigration, I mean. You know, we've seen like Tucker Carlson basically said that that there is a, a concerted attempt on the part of Democrats to let people in from other cultures into the country so they can change. So that basically that these people of other ethnicities and will come in and they will then flood our, our you know, the electorate and, uh, you know, white people will will then be outnumbered. I mean, and he's already making that case that, you know. If we let people in from uh, from Afghanistan, that that's going to be part of that. So so there that is definitely uh, a, a thought that is you're hearing a lot in, in a scare in, tactic, fear scare tactic, tactic, right now. Yeah, and and uh, I mean, uh, so I mean that's that's really an absurd way of looking at. It. We we have we have challenges on the border, and I and I'm I'm not a, I'm a sort of believer in open borders, and I think that you have to have laws, and I think you have to have a, a process and everything. But but all that kind of rhetoric is really a scare tactic. You know, when it comes to the Alamo. You know, uh, it. I understand how much it means to people, and I've always like. I'll, I'll tell you what. I it's just, it might be a weird comparison, but I, I used to live in Memphis, Tennessee, and I've often often felt I've always, I've always felt Memphis and, and San Antonio were like kindred cities in a way because they're both old river cities, um, and they're both minority majority populations. The majority population in in Memphis is is African American, and the majority population in San Antonio is is latino um and uh they're but they're you know in in memphis they're both also they attract a lot of tourists both of them they also have a military presence in both cities but in memphis the big thing obviously was graceland and that was the big tourist attraction people you know would come to see elvis presley's home but everybody that i knew that lived there um you know, they didn't necessarily dislike Elvis Presley, but, you know, if you mentioned Graceland, they would kind of roll their eyes, you know, because it was, yeah, it's a tourist attraction. So it's important to the economy of Memphis. But if you lived there, most of the people I knew who lived there didn't, never went there, never, they had never been there, never visited. They're all Everybody who visited would go first place, you know, but people there were kind of, and, and so I have to, I've kind of had that attitude about the Alamo. I think there's a lot of mythology around it, which that new book, Forget the Alamo, I think exposes some of that. I know there's a lot of controversy about that, but I think that the, uh, to me they're they they are they're they have acknowledged they're working on standing on the shoulders of scholars who've looked into that who've looked into original documents who've seen the letters of some of these uh texas independence fighters who were talking about how they didn't want to have slavery taken away from them but yeah you know, no and um,
0: I and uh i'll post the link to your puro politics podcast on that uh i listened Thank to you. that and, I, and that was interesting and uh and so uh, yeah, saying yeah. So a, a, there's a narrative I, I, battle, right? There's a there's a
1: fight for a narrative, right? Yeah, it, and and I I just think that that you know there's a a desire the the, the desire to see the Alamo as uh, I think it's you know it's a really interesting piece of history and uh, and I see it that way and I I can appreciate it on that level, but the mythology that every that it symbolizes you know something kind of like it's it's something kind of sacred that it's basically almost like a religious. Temple in some way. Um, I don't. I don't have that, that belief about it. And I, I try to be respectful to people who do. But I just think that that if they're, they're going to be that way, you know, let's not pretend that James Bowie was some wonderful heroic guy when he was a slave trader who was smuggling, you know, black men into Louisiana and selling them into in you know in, into slavery over there, you know, for money. Uh, Let's let's not pretend that he was some wonderful guy. Let's let's not whitewash history. We don't need to do it. We can appreciate that something historic happened at the Alamo, that it's that it's a fascinating story. But let's not. But we're seeing um, both at the national and the state level that people. You know, that even historical fact now is partisan and to uh, to question. I mean, I've seen this all, all my life, you know, that if you. That there, there's always been a faction in this country that if you, you questioned that if you, you talk too much about the history of segregation or Jim Crow laws or, you know, that kind of like, you know, like if, if, if people started talking about that too much, oh my God, what you, do you hate America? Why are you talking about this? And so if you start talking about some of the, the uh, I think, uh, the flaws of the people who fought for Texas independence or what their motivations might have been. Then it's like, what do you hate, Texas? Or you just what's, what's wrong with you? But because I, I, I don't understand that that uh, that sensibility that we're. I think our kids. I have a sixteen-year-old daughter who's, who loves history. Our kids can handle the complexity of the facts, you know. I'm I look I I want this country to be a great country, and, and I'm glad that I was born in this country. I really am and And I realized that there were a lot of other places with all our flaws or a lot of other places I could be where my life would, I wouldn't have had as much opportunity and I wouldn't have as much freedom and and so I'm glad to be in this country but i can but I can also like look at all kinds of foreign policy and just uh, sort of all kinds of things that have happened within this country, all the injustices that have happened, and we can talk about it and we can recognize it and um, I don't understand when People feel like you, you're just when when you, we have Abbott and Dan Patrick and so on talking about we have to have patriotic education. Well, that I don't know how it sounds to you. Patriotic education that really sounds like almost like a like a, a kind of a, a, a Soviet block, iron curtain type of approach to education. Like basically, we have to teach you this. Uh, we have this dogma, and we have to teach you. We're not gonna. We we have to. We have to we have to uh, indoctrinate you i mean that's what it sounds like to me I, I maybe i'm sounding extreme but it's like we have to indoctrinate you into this type of thinking rather than saying hey, let's look at all the complexity of history and the good the bad and the ugly and try to learn from it instead of thinking we we begin our approach with the united states is we believe in american exceptionalism and then we work backwards and try to find only the wonderful things, only the wonderful things, because we don't we don't want to talk about the non-wonderful things because that's not patriotic. Yeah, I think the patriotism in the good sense is. An understanding and an acknowledgement of what's wrong with your society. Because that's because that's how you're going to make it better. If We didn't acknowledge. The, the, the injustices, the racial injustices, particularly in the deep south. You know, going back historically, if we didn't acknowledge that, how is it, how are we ever going to correct it?
0: Yeah, or even, even here, or even here towards like the handles, You know, all the like a lot of people don't know all the stuff that ha- that went down with 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 all the homies back in the day, man. They you know that they, they had they it pretty seen,
1: bad. Yeah, swimming pools and getting uh getting wrapped on the hand if they if they spoke a word of Spanish in the hallways of the, the school. I mean, it's absurd. You know, some of the things, and we can talk about it, and we can still say there's a lot to recommend this country, and this country has has a a system that that allows for 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 um, for improving the flaws and we have we have corrected we have self-corrected some some things along the way and we can continue to try to do that but let's you know i don't i just don't get the idea of it has to be if, if you don't speak of america as perfect if you if you talk too much about uh injustice you're you're just uh you're a hater. Yeah. I don't
0: <laughs> yeah, so uh so uh that goes to my final question and kind of just wanted to fill you out on this uh because uh uh it's uh you know I don't uh, hide it. It's part of my agenda and it's been for a long time. And uh uh I, I've never heard anybody say it uh as much as I have. Actually, no, I don't nobody says that I'm the only tonto that says this, but I used to say this back when we used to go back on the on the on the on the radio and I would say. Oh, Texas is going to be the first, uh, Texas is going to win a world cup before the United States does. And that was always to say that, um, that, you know, I'm a, like, uh, I want Texas to secede. What is the, the, the politics of, uh, of, of Texas, uh, and the secessionist movement in, uh, here, um, uh, whether it's something that could be get put, uh, uh, you know, put on, uh, for a vote and then it, you know, because, you know, I don't fall into the rhetoric that the fear tactic that, oh, we can't do it because we saw a peaceful secession as far as in soft terms, as far as Brexit. You know, that was a, a you know, you can leave a bigger union. And 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 so 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 I don't so I don't know. I'm just asking you, like, uh, that is yeah. part of my agenda. I don't hide it. I want yeah. Texas to be a, its own country. Mm-hmm. I feel that I can I, I can better my family, my community. If I just have to worry about Texas stuff, but um, can you kind of speak towards that in in in, in the in the Texas, uh, uh,
1: you know, stage? Well, one thing I've noticed, because obviously we're a Republican state, is that I I didn't really hear any serious discussion about secession in this country. I mean, I'm not, and you may you may have been talking about it beforehand. So I, I, you know, and I know there are individuals, but I'm talking about from, you know, uh, as a serious thing that was discussed by Political figures. I didn't really hear it in the state until Barack Obama became president. <laughs> you know, because you had a Democratic president, um, who you know, uh, you you had a Republican leadership in the state who were against him from the very beginning. You know, and so um, so it was ta- they was talking about like now it was seen as we, it's not just we have a president we don't like now they are trying to undermine everything that we believe in. So we need to really think about it. and and Rick Perry sort of as governor kind of flirted with it. I don't think he was that serious about it. but He flirted with the rhetoric of that. I, I didn't hear any any talk among our state political leaders about secession when Donald Trump was president, right? Did you hear any of that? No, because no, we're in alignment with him, right? That that was their thinking. So now you know will, will, it, will it flare up again? You know, I don't know. I I I would just say that um, I, that's 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 there are many reasons why I would be like uh, suspicious of, of, the, of the of it. But I think that uh, the fact that it only seems to happen in this state in any serious way or it comes up um, when when there's a Democratic president. I mean, I think that tells you something that it, it's really pretty much about when when Trump was president. I think Greg Abbott, and Dan Patrick and others saw their their patriotism for the United States was very high. And when Obama was president, um, you know it was the federal government is you know they're they're out of control, and so there, the, there was a little bit too much hip hop at the
0: White House, right? It was a little bit too it was a little hip hoppy, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you know, and that's the, that's the thing. I mean, you know, I, I I don't I I know that you want this to happen, so I don't want to disappoint you, Greg. I don't think this can <laughs> happen, but. Uh, you know it's it would be i will say this it would be really interesting like if you could just kind of like um you could test something out and then kind of go back you know it just it just do if if it was some kind of like a maybe some kind of time travel thing that you could do um it would be really interesting to to like live in a in a, an independent Texas for a year and see what it was what it's like um that would be a very interesting like experiment to see but um yeah i personally i personally don't, don't want to see it as but,
0: uh, but I mean, it would be interesting to just, uh, in a short. Podcast. Yeah. 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 But, uh, being sports fans, uh, when I bring it up, cause I, I do bring it up cause, uh, uh, in, in, in Spanish football, Barcelona, you know, the, the Catalans, they have like the secessionist movement. So, mm-hmm. so, so I always bring it up through that way. So, I mean, I don't talk about secession. The only way I talk about it really is through sports through, through this. And, uh, the first thing that I would say, well, what about the Cowboys? I was like, Hey, it'll be fine. It was like, I was like the Cowboys would play in the NFL just like, or like the, you know, like uh, Canada has teams that play in the base, baseball, basketball. I was like, uh, uh, what kind of NFL or MLB or NBA would be good without any Texas teams? Like, so these guys only care about the sports. Like, like what's going to happen to the teams? Are they're still going to get, yeah. and, and I say, yeah, man, it, it'll be fine but uh, we just joke around about it, but uh, they don't even care about the economic or the, they're just like, Hey, are the Spurs going to still be able to uh,
1: win a championship? And if Texas succeeds and I was like, yes, they will be. be. Yeah. It'd be like the NHL, you know, you got a mix of Canada, Canadian and, uh, and U S team. So it'd be like
0: that. Yeah. So um, just to close, man, um, um, uh, 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 bring it back to the original reason I brought you back. And that's just to, uh, you can give kind of like your closing thoughts a little bit on, on, you know, this the 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 pull and tug that that people put on you and and the media uh, and and whether it's warranted or not or is it also just that that's part of the game that everybody should always question everything like you said
1: yeah i think everybody should look the, the role of the press really should be as a possible try to get to an objective truth i think one of the things when when the press tends to fail is when you know you have one person on one political side saying oh this other person they're horrible and they're a liar and they're disgusting and then the other, the other side saying, no that other person is disgusting and then you run a story that's saying well this guy said this and this other guy said that and you just like okay we gave them equal weight we're good that doesn't really achieve anything i don't think i think the the, the there should be an attempt to dig your to the to, for the truth and, and i think that i i personally i know this you know some people were upset i personally think it was positive thing. When Donald Trump would say something that was objectively a lie, because there would be video evidence that what he said was completely false to to be called out on it, not to say, well, you know um, some people don't think what you know some people think so you know don't don't mince words you know be, and and but this was a different thing because we've we've had presidents who have been dishonest but never never uh, so frequently tell us something that we saw with our own eyes it was different. I mean when we have the republican politicians uh, some of his allies saying. You know, that thing that happened on January 6th, it was just some, some, some patriotic tourists wanting to see the Capitol, you know. And, uh, you know, we got video of it. We were watching it in real time for a few hours, you know, uh, where my eyes lying to me. So but the press has to get to try to get to the truth. The, re- the reality is that you've got a lot of, you know, really good reporters working really hard. Sometimes they're out there covering their beat, having to get, you know, stories every day. They got limited time to do it. So those realities can, can be very difficult. But I think that um, my, my, my belief is that um, people, I think in this country have, they obviously, a lot of people dislike the press, but I think that people have really mixed up a lot of things. They've mixed up 24-hour TV news. They've even included social media as press the press when it's really just a bunch of people spouting off when they don't know what they're talking about. I think at the core of what the press is, is really reporters going out, covering, telling you stuff, Going to places, talking to people and getting information to you that you don't know. It's not somebody just like saying, oh, you know, Kim Kardashian, you know, just posted some new pictures of herself and I'm going to write a little story about it because I'm going to get some clicks. You know, that's not that's not the press, really. I mean, not really. As far as what the press is there to achieve, the press is there because we don't need the press for that. We need the press to go out and dig for information and go out and talk to the people and hold our elected officials and others Feet to the fire. And if they're even if they're big business people who are corrupt and cheating people, expose that. This is what we need to do with the press for. And I think that in newspapers around this country, newspapers don't don't have the resources that they used to. They don't have the luxury and necessarily to send. You know, I, I talked to old uh, older reporters, you know, who talked about, oh, yeah, back in the day, and, you know, we used to fly us on a plane and we'd go and cover these things and cover these political events and everything. You know, things are obviously. You know, budgets are tighter than they used to be and, uh, and the resources are tighter. So it's affected the press. But I, my experience is that a lot of great, particularly young reporters at newspapers who are out there trying to get to the truth. And people need to know the difference between that. And if you don't like some talking head on TV news who's just talking about some stuff that they barely know anything about, that's not the same as a reporter at a newspaper who's working hard, in some cases putting themselves in harm's way putting themselves in danger. We, had a, we have a, a tremendous reporter who was out in hospitals during the, uh, not dr- in, during the COVID crisis and, and, and putting herself in, in really a, her health at risk to get to stories to tell us about what people in our community were going through, what hospitals were going through, and healthcare workers. And it's important information. And it really makes me mad when people like that, who, who are so dedicated to the truth and work so hard, and put themselves. It's almost like you come out of that almost with PTSD if you have to do that kind of reporting all the time. And they're working really hard. And in the mind of the public, those hardworking reporters get equated with some guy. Some guy who shows up on one of the TV twenty-four uh, hour news channels and just starts saying you know some stuff that they don't really know anything about. And it's not the same thing. And people need to get clear. I, I the last thing I want to say is like. You know, I've been a reporter for my, most of my career, but right now I write opinion. I'm a, I'm a columnist, so I, I write my opinion. And I think a lot of people get confused. And people sometimes will say to me, "Well, you know, you're supposed to be an objective reporter and everything." I'll say, "Well, you know, I my job is actually to, to express my opinion. I don't. I have to hopefully base it in in some in reporting and and some, and it, it should be, it has to be based in fact, but it's my opinion. And so people get a lot of these things mixed up." and that's why i think they get so angry at the press because they get confused about what the categories are
0: yeah no i think that's that was key man it was the, it's the meshing of the two to and then they get frustrated when they yeah no no i hear you man that that's that's definitely what it is so yeah man uh, could you please uh plug in where people can uh ch- uh, uh you know reach uh, read some of your stuff you know obviously or and then uh, i'll put some information for your for your 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 the the book you have we didn't talk about it but we I'd like to have you back on uh and, and 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 we, we can talk about all kinds of different things can you kind of put where people can reach you at?
1: Yeah you know um uh my my if, if they want to find me on social media um my my Twitter handle is Gilgamesh 470 Gilgamesh uh G-I-L-G-A-M-E-S-H 470 and I usually post my stories uh there I have my, my columns I do three columns a week And I also post our podcast, which we do once a week, which covers, uh, you know, what's going on politically uh, every week. So um, I think that's the best place. And obviously, our our uh, premium site, ExpressNews.com, site uh, you can find a lot of stuff there. Um, So yeah, I really appreciate you having me on, and it was fun talking about all this.
0: All right, thank you, uh, Gilbert, for coming on. And uh, if you don't mind, man, just stay for a minute after we sign out here, because I want to talk to you about some stuff. Cool, man. Thank Thank you.